You're listening to a special edition of Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 1st of September 2019 on Monocle 24. You're listening to a special edition of Monocle's House View, coming to you from Midori House in London. The novelist Thomas Keneally is one of the world's most celebrated writers. His most famous work, the Booker Prize-winning Schindler's Ark, was later adapted into the Steven Spielberg film Schindler's List. He's penned novels that take readers into the grip of the US Civil War, the Russian Revolution, World War II Yugoslavia, among many, many others, not to mention an extensive library of non-fiction, including an epic three-part history of Keneally's native Australia. Thomas Keneally's new book is The Book of Science and Antiquities. He joined Andrew Muller for this special Sunday edition of Monocle's House View. Let's start with the title of the book, which I want to start with because it has, of course, two titles. Here in the UK, it's the Book of Science and Antiquities, but it was published in uh, our native Australia. And what I like to think of as a great example of that uh, antipodean culture of plain speaking as two old men dying. Um, (laughs) Which of the titles do you prefer? I like them both. In fact, one of the, and I'm not just being diplomatic, But the largest segment of the book is called The Book of Science and Antiquity. Mm -hmm. So it was a title I'd already uh, uh, thought. There are three sections to the book, and one of them, the largest, is called that. So I'd already thought up the title in a sense. The two old men dying uh, are two parallel, sort of parallel characters living an extremely long time apart. We we have Shelby, who is a more or less contemporary documentary filmmaker, and we have a character you call Shade or Learned Man, who lived in Australia some 42,000 years ago. Um, I want to start by talking about Shade, because you do mention in the introduction to the book a certain self-consciousness about articulating what is clearly an Australian Indigenous person from the point of view of being a a white Australian. Uh, And and that's something you've done before, of course, most notably on the the chant of Mm. Jimmy Blacksmith back in about, I guess, 1971, 72. That's right, yeah. How has your approach to questions like that changed in that time? Because Australian attitudes, I think, towards Indigenous peoples have changed a lot in that time. I would prefer to think for the better. uh, Drastically so. Uh, I don't think we have to be doctrinaire about uh, cultural attribution of stealing other people's stories uh, as long as you got their permission. All stories, in a sense, belong to all humans. Um, I don't think it was an issue that much delayed Homer or Shakespeare or any <laughs> of those folk, but it is appropriate, given that there are so many good Aboriginal writers, given that we took a whole continent from the Aboriginals, that we should not also steal their stories. However, I make the case in my introduction that it's okay to write about early humans, relatively early humans, homo sapiens, uh, because at that time, uh, my ancestors and yours were living a similar life. I don't think it's comfortable, actually, in Central Asia, Mm. 
warding off the saber-toothed tiger, trying to keep warm. And um, I felt that Mungo Man, and I hope this proves to be true, Mungo Man is the prototype for Learned Man, uh, that he will become the centre of an Australian shrine in the desert, which we will all visit, which will reconcile us to this giant fact, how long the Aboriginals have been there. Because this has been a very gradual and somewhat grudging admission by white Australia, hasn't it? Yes, indeed. Uh, But even Bob Hawke, the the great Australian Mm. um, prime minister who recently died, even Hawkey used to say, listen, you are got to wake up to the fact that they've been here for 2,500 uh, <laughs> uh, bloody generations and we've been here for five. You know, who wins that contest? And he's right. Slowly, we're beginning to see the antiquity of that occupation. And I think Mungo Man society was very advanced compared to uh, what we know of our uh, ancestors, peregrinations, mm. pilgrimages at that time because, um, first of all, the lake or Learned Man, mm. Learned Man is the fictional version of Mungo Man who was found by a friend of ours, 42,000 years old. His skeleton was found, was only gradually we learned he was 42,000 years old. He was also ritually buried Mm. buried with great honours, and he's the oldest ritual burial that humans have, that that we've discovered so far on Earth. And that gives a very human dimension to his burial. He was caked with ochre, which came from 200 miles away. So there was another community of Homo Mm. sapiens out there beyond the Darling River, which is to blazes. Uh, <laughs> like, like everything in Australia, it's like a long way away. Yeah. It's huge. If, if uh, We've driven out it extensively through that country a number of times, and it's t- nearly two days' drive from New South Wales, from, from Sydney, rather, and it's still in New South Wales. And it was out in that area that Mungo Man's ochre came from. Some of the knives he used came from the upper, the glacier, glacier mm. country, as it then was, two ice ages ago, uh, glacier country uh, in the Australian Alps. And so we know from his existence and what is found in the shores of that lake by paleontologists now that there were other communities of Homo sapiens with whom Mungo Man was trading. But he and his fellow men and women uh, lived in communities by the lake to which came the giant fauna of the time. Mm. There was a two and a half ton um, creature called the Diprototon, and it uh, was a vegetarian. It was easy to hunt. You just had to be careful it didn't fall on you <laughs> when you brought it down. Uh, there were giant kangaroos, which have since become extinct. There were giant uh, emus. There were five or six foot high uh, koalas. 
there was a marsupial line related to the koala uh, that was a very savage creature, but a very reclusive one. And there were giant lizards. And as you know, Aboriginal people like nothing like a good goanna, <laughs> a, a, good, a good lizard. And uh, therefore, Mungo Man didn't have to travel 42,000 years ago except for the things we all travel for still, uh, romance, education, pilgrimage, uh, and uh, trade. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I, I, sing, I try to sing of his life, of his fortunate life in this book. A, a lot of what you're describing there, that history and that culture and even that environment, is, of course, still... Insufficiently understood or acknowledged in Australia, which I—it's one of the reasons why I think it's been heartening that a book like Bruce Pascoe's *Dark Emu* has been such a hit. Well, uh, that's it, a it, great book. It's a great book, and I had a small hand in persuading uh, a jury in Australia, myself and an uh, Aboriginal Russian called Melissa <laughs> Lukashenko. We were on the jury, and we formed a phalanx to get it named the Book of the Year, and it—it. It, it is groundbreaking because it talks about the fact that the Aboriginals were not this um, totally vagrant hunter-gatherer. Which is, of course, what, what we were always and told we're growing always up. And we taught that. And they, and the, we were shown pictures of them living their normal lives uh, in kangaroo country in winter and still wearing loincloths. They weren't dumb to the benefits of uh, kangaroo shoes, kangaroo skin shoes and kangaroo skin cloaks. and uh, But they were depicted as being too dumb to, to bring down a, a kangaroo. That idea you were talking about uh, as Mungo Man, the actual or learned man as he appears in your book, as being kind of a focus of reconciliation, or as you put it in the book, the reconciling phenomenon between Australia's geological antiquity and its social juvenility. Um, those are the two great contradictions at the heart of Australia. Do you see the relationship between those changing, though, or perhaps even improving? Uh, greatly. Um, first of all, there's a big move to get the Aboriginals recognised, uh, Aboriginal occupation recognised mm. and honoured in the Constitution. And via what the Aboriginals want is an advisory board, elective advisory council, which can advise the government on all native legislation. Until now, white guys have decided what's good for the Aboriginals. This has changed to the point that now an indigenous, indigenous man is the minister for um, Aboriginal affairs. And so uh, we hope that with through his persuasion, we'll get both recognition uh, of Aboriginal antiquity, Aboriginal uh, ownership never ceded, and above all, um, uh, Aboriginal, um, uh, an Aboriginal count advisory council, uh, conservatives immediately condemn the idea as a third house <laughs> of parliament. They're always got a reason, those guys. They're always got a reason to be narky and uh, to prorogue things. Anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the uh, 
the proposition for an Aboriginal council uh, is gaining ground. Now, the Kiwis' relationship, the New Zealanders' relationship with their indigenous was through a treaty that was made with Queen Victoria. And the, Abor uh, the, the Aboriginals, if you like, of New Zealand, the Maori, have been protected. They, they draw their rights now that they're lawyers and parliamentarians. They draw the basis of Maori rights and stewardship rights out of the, the, the Treaty of Waitangi. Uh, but uh, no such treaty or compact exists between the 250 language groups of Australia and the bulk of the Australian people. Well, let's talk a bit about the other protagonist of your book, Shelby, who is a, a documentary filmmaker, uh, a, a man of advancing years. Uh, he has a certain number, I think it's fair to say, of overlapping interests and experiences and indeed acquaintances yes, uh, with, with yourself. <laughs> he's a pilgrim like learned man. Uh, but, but is he also, or at least are you fairly relaxed about a people assuming that he's also you to a large extent? He is to me in part, except uh, uh, his sexual encounters. You know, there's always more sex in a novel <laughs> than in real life. Uh, and so, for example, uh, he... he puzzles a lot about mitochondrial Eve and his admiration for um, Mungo Man or Learned Man. And he knows that he and Mungo, he and Learned, are the children of mitochondrial Eve. As, well, so, as are we all. So he attends a... Uh, he goes to a war, to film a war in East Africa, and he is aware at that stage that where this war is being waged, mitochondrial Eve lived. Uh, he's questing with trying to get a meaning all the time. But he also takes his fascination with Mungo Man and pre-European Australia to the Arctic, where he's studying the, the, you know, the question for him is why do they have the same rights as the Aboriginals do uh, when they're so removed. And the other question is, what does he do about his old girlfriend who's also <laughs> on the cruise with his wife? I, 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 thought that, I, thought, I thought that was unnecessarily cruel of you, really. Yes, it's, uh, 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 be, because it's not me. Uh, I did that cruise. <laughs> you hasten to stress. The, uh, the cruising girlfriend uh, isn't, uh, wasn't on the ship. Um, uh, and uh, so um, I said that to Judy. My wife is very forgiving, but she, I said, there's a fake girlfriend <laughs> on this cruise and she wasn't on it when we did it, when we were researching the uh, the, the uh, Bering Strait and the Yupik and Inuit. Uh, so Judy has been with me looking she's interested in all that stuff too so like Kath mm. Judy is rather like Kath Kath uh the wife in the book she's up front she's after all a descendant of um uh, of uh, door breaking down landlords door breaking down convicts from East Galway and so she's a forthright woman <laughs> uh, as many Australian women are 
I, I, as I yes, I, I've noticed that. Which is what I like. I mean, uh, Mungo man's like me. He knows he couldn't have got through life without strong women, uh, and therefore they're the. Um, they're, they're, Naturally, they exist in their own right, but they they take the fate of partially good, uh, uncertain men into their hands. They often put the final spin on the pilgrimage that men undertake. And that's the other thing. We think we want a quiet life, yet London's full of 50-year-olds who are racing off with another girl, upsetting the household, tipping the household, raising issues of, uh, of income, raising issues of housing. And, and that's a rather graphic example that we always want to be on the move. We want to... I've got a friend who was a very middle-class biologist and she encountered an Australian plant... It was one that the Empress Josephine liked. A French mm. explorer, Baudin, sent it back to Josephine, and she loved it. It's a beautiful tree called the perfume tree. And she has extracted over the years a compound from it, patented it, and has tried it in vitro and in vivo and is now has now synthesized it. But the expense of all this is she lives like a backpacker you know <laughs> she is the captive of this plant and it would she would have had an easier life if she'd never encountered it but it's her defining journey and the, in this book there are defining journeys well, on that score was it important to you to have your protagonist visit uh, east africa specifically eritrea which was a war you visited in person when it was happening and you, you became quite i think enthused by the eritrean cause yes, at indeed, the time indeed. Uh, was it important to you to do this as kind of a settling accounts with settling of accounts rather yes. with what the eritrean regime became because as is often the way when starry-eyed revolutionaries get into power, mm. there does often become something of a case of meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And not only was I betting on the uh, Eritreans, but Fred Hollows, a very hard-nosed doctor... Who does... Uh, and a genuine hero, I think, he, he, who, who does appear in your book in slightly disguised yes, form. Yes, and he talked me into going the first time. So he said, if you're man enough, you know, you ought to bloody... Fred... <laughs> Fred was an extraordinary eye doctor. He worked with Aboriginals and he dressed, he always dressed in, Frank Hardy, the, the novelist, said, in $5 worth of clothing, Fred. So he dressed like a plumber and he talked like a plumber. And I, I remember an Aboriginal woman telling me she was sent down from Burke to meet this great eye doctor. And this bloke comes in and he's roughly <laughs> dressed and he says... Give us a look at your eye, love. Oh, that's not too bloody good, is it? Um, and um, she thought the great eye doctor will be in after this plumber left. <laughs> <laughs> but it was Fred. And Fred started a world movement to attack cataract blindness in Nepal, in Vietnam, in 
East Africa, and he bullied our government into putting up the money for an intraocular lens facility in Asmara, which is still working. It's still manufacturing. When I last looked for $7, cataract lenses, and it was based on the technology the Eritreans already had going during the revolution, as I explained in the book. So later in the book, Shelby uh, goes back, as I went back in 2000, when war breaks out again, I went back to, to witness the destruction of this. It looked as though Asmara would fall to mm. the Ethiopian army. And I wanted to be there to... to ridiculously protect this eye facility of Fred. Fred had died. It was a crazy idea. But if they were going to destroy it with hand grenades, which was they destroyed a lot of equipment in the country, I wanted them to know they were destroying Australian stuff and visionary stuff and in, in at least two senses, visionary stuff. It was a mad impulse, but my daughter went with me. And uh, so I, I write about um, Shelby going back for the same reason. Mm. Uh, but uh, poor old Shelby dies of esophageal cancer and the operation associated with it. After I finished the book, I found out I, about three months after, I found out I had to say, have the same operation. But uh, thank the gods that be, I'm, I survived it to this point. I had it last year, exactly a year ago. And, um, well, things are good so far, which is on all an 83-year-old can say. Enormously pleased to hear it. Thomas Keneally, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, look, thanks for being here. It's a great honour. The legendary author Thomas Keneally there in conversation with Monocle's Andrew Malone. Keneally's new book, The Book of Science and Antiquities, is out now, published by Horda. This has been a special edition of Monocle's House View. Your regular program returns at 1800 London time on Monday. I'm Ben Ryland. Thank you for tuning in.